Elena. And I'm Grant. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other cool stuff about the past. Where is a monster's favorite place to swim? I don't know, dear. Where? Lake Erie. I gotta try a lot harder to come up with more marriage puns because you are killing me already. What? It's great! <laughs> it's, it is a great joke. And it's a perfect segue to what we're gonna talk about today. Oh, why is that? Because we are going to talk about some Great Lakes oddities. You know what's odd? Why anybody would want to live here? Hey, yo, oh. Nah, no. This episode is going to focus on some weird, strange, fun, odd things that have happened around the Great Lakes region. All right, so we're going to either be... on the Great Lakes or off of them. So we're going to be jet setting around. Got a got a sampler pack, grab bag. Yeah, it's a sampler pack. Stick and move. I mean, it's all history. It's all, like, things that have happened through time. Some of it, we are going to be questioning whether it's real. Ah, uh, ooh. ooh. Like our first story. Yeah? Our first story of Bessie. Do you know about Bessie? Ah, uh, the, the world's most famous name for a cow. No. Bessie, or South Bay Bessie. Uh-huh. She is also known is the Loch Ness Monster of Lake Erie. Oh, so fake. Maybe. <laughs> you don't have evidence. I imagine a lot of people don't have evidence. So tell me about this supposed lake monster. Okay, so Bessie is said to be a snake-like creature, which is 30 to 40 feet long. Ooh. Sometimes described to have arms or fins or dog-shaped head or pointy tail or no scales or large ostrich egg-sized eyes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Bessie has, well, been around for a long time. Sightings go back all the way to 1793. A lady never reveals her age, dear. Exactly. So we don't know how old Bessie is. <laughs> So in 1793, there was the captain of the sloop Felicity mm -hmm. uh, shooting at some ducks north of Sandusky, Ohio. Real stand-up guy. <laughs> and uh, claims he saw the creature. That was the first, like, recorded sighting. In 1817, near Toledo, some French settlers claimed they encountered her on a beach, uh, withering in what they called her death throes. And then they left. To, like, go get help. When they came back, she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So she must have gotten better. <laughs> they were her just-got-a-itch-on-my-back throws. Something like that. Yeah. In 1892, the crew of a ship said that they saw a sea serpent wrestling in the waters with an unseen creature. Oh, they yeah. couldn't describe what the unseen creature was. Mega shark. Mega shark. And giant octopus. Mm-hmm. In there they're with Bessie. A, they're having a weird three-way. <laughs> So sightings of Bessie basically happened consistently. There was never a time when she wasn't being seen by people all the way through present day. Mm -hmm. uh, there was actually, in like 2001, there were some attacks on swimmers by an unknown creature along a Pump House Beach by Port Dover, Ontario. Okay, okay. Wait, you said this is the South Bay Lake? What's she doing on the north side of the lake? She can travel around. <laughs> Most of the sightings are, like, situated on the south side, mm -hmm. but they have happened all over. Okay. And the thing with this is that it's, like, a very modern-day thing, and 
three people were bitten within a day by something large with razor teeth. Um, and they were never able to identify what it was. Probably just somebody who lives in Ohio. <laughs> just waiting down there. Go Buckeyes. The people had like a six inch bite mm-hmm. on their body parts. The only thing that they said it could maybe have been was a bowfin, but it led to a lot of people thinking it was Bessie or like Bessie's cousin. Right. Maybe there's a whole family line of Bessies. Yeah. We don't know. Be. We don't know. You haven't seen it. I've got an inkling, but we don't know. Did you know Cleveland, Ohio minor league hockey team is the Cleveland Monsters, <laughs> named after Bessie? Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. She also has a beer named after her. Is that sweet? It's probably better. One thing that's interesting with this, this creature of the unknown, that in Iroquois culture, they have a dragon-like horned serpent. It is native to uh, the Great Lakes capsizes canoes and eats people in various tales and has said that one could be spared by making offerings to it or calling on the god of thunder within the culture. So this is an interesting thing that maybe like helped the connection of where maybe Bessie Hmm. came from. Yeah. But it's probably just a big lake sturgeon. (laughs) So we're going to go with probably what it is. Though people say they saw something much bigger than a sturgeon. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? Hey, guys, I saw a sturgeon. Wait, wait, let me try that again. Hey, guys, I saw something much bigger than a sturgeon. (laughs) I don't know. You could be like, I saw, like, the largest sturgeon ever. Let's go get it. I'm too busy shooting ducks. I mean, that's basically the story of Bessie. There's not much more to say, but I thought it was interesting. I did not know that there was possibly a lake monster. Uh, Moving on to another oddity. This is one I actually shared, um... An article on a while ago on the History Honeys page. Which is why you should follow us on social media. Yeah. But in case you didn't see it. You get sneak previews, it turns out. Give you a little bit about it. Because I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. So, like, we know the Great Lakes is filled with a lot of shipwrecks. Yeah. It's not really, like, an oddity. Because that's just, <laughs> there's a lot of it. It's an unfortunate reality. It's There's just a lot of it. There's also a train wreck in Lake Superior. Well, laying tracks to point into the lake was probably the the first mistake. I think that's where they went wrong. No, no, no. It did. It, that's not. That's not what happened. Oh, okay. How okay. else does a train get somewhere, dear? This train was Canadian Pacific Railway locomotive six ninety four, and uh, it was a freight train. June 9th, nineteen ten, uh, crashed into a rock slide Ooh. that had happened on the tracks. And was sent flying over a 60-foot ledge into Lake Superior. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, like, back then, the only way to know about, like, rock slides was, was to, to, like... ramp it? Well, no. Like, to know that they existed, to get, like, warning, was, like, employees were supposed to, like, walk the tracks and, like, see if they were clear. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, they couldn't be everywhere all the time. And they had no way of knowing... Mm-hmm. That there was a rock slide along this edge. And so when they came upon it, there was nothing they could do but hit it. There were three men on board. Engineer uh, Frank Whitley, Fireman E. Clark, and Brakeman J. McMillan, all of who died. McMillan actually died trying to, like, leap from the train as it went flying over the edge. Ah, uh, didn't quite make it. No. His body was the only one recovered. Oh. So, because he he jumped before, you know, it sunk to the bottom of a lake. Maybe the other two survived. 
Probably not. They started new lives as Canadians. Well, they were, like, Canadian. As Americans. <laughs> the train wreck was lost. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they knew it happened, but they never found it. It was 235 feet below the water. <laughs> like, you can't just be like, oh, there it is. That's pretty far. So it wasn't until July of this year that a team uh, found it by Marathon Ontario, 106 years after the wreck. Only they found it in 2010. <laughs> if only. I, I hate missing a good anniversary. In August of this, this year, the team um, is continuing their like research mm-hmm. and dives, and uh, they're hoping to find the bell or the whistle, which they hope the Canadian government will let them salvage and they can put it on display in the hometown museum of the men who died because they all were from the same town. Uh, the locomotive, though, is like not something they could salvage. And it's to pieces and rusted away and stuff. Would you really want it these days? We've moved on. People like to put those in museums. Intact ones. That's why they're just <laughs> looking for the bell. All right. One thing that's interesting is that train line is still used today. Watch out for rock slides. Well, they have things in place for that now. Sure, there's that's like, what they say. It's like fencing they use, and if the fencing gets broken by a rock slide, like they noti- there's a notification that's sent out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Are these trains managed by Enbridge? Huh? Huh? <laughs> Flashback, episode one. There's apparently a lot of trains at bottoms of lakes. I found this out through, like, a rail fan train forum thing. <laughs> they're talking about this thing, and then suddenly they're like, oh, well, there's a train at the bottom of this lake, and oh, there's a train over here, and over here, and over here. I was like, oh, why is everyone dropping trains in the lake? So the rail fans of today learn to swim. They... Maybe maybe they help with, like, scuba diving. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, keep the scuba diving classes going. Okay, so those were a couple, like, short little stories to get us, like, going yeah. into some, some lake oddities. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk about the Great Lakes Pirate. You ready to learn about pirate? Shiver me timbers, I'm hunting white tails. <laughs> Our listener, Kieran, brought this up yes. very early on, because he actually wrote an article about the per- person we're going to talk about. I was also hoping we'd, I'd find out, like, more information on it, since it'd be closer to home. Mm-hmm. Sorry to say... Didn't find much <laughs> because there's a lot of very similar stories and a lot of conflicting information. So, Roaring Dan CV. That's a heck of a name. Yeah. I want my name to be a verb. Well, yeah. And, well, I mean, and, there's and, like quotation marks there. That's like his nickname. Yeah, I know. I know what a nickname is. I want my <laughs> nickname to be a verb. Okay. Well, what do you want it to be? I don't. Something as cool or cooler than Roaring, and that is a high bar. Spiraling. (laughs) Spiraling Grant. You just twirl and twirl. Yeah. Ah, we gotta workshop this a bit more. Okay. Roaring Dan lived from 1865 to 1949. Mm -hmm. He was born in Maine, and at the age of uh, 13, he became a sailor and served in the U.S. Navy for three years. Uh, followed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs as a deputy marshal, tracking, like, bootleggers and smugglers and all that stuff. And he moved to northern Wisconsin in the late 1880s, mm-hmm. where he married 14-year-old Mary Plumley. That's how they did it back then. Uh, they had two daughters mm-hmm. and later moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He then married both of them? No. Okay. Uh, there he became a fisherman, a farmer, and a saloon owner. Mm-hmm. So uh, shortly after that, by the encouragement of 
his friend, Frederick Pabst of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. Mm-hmm. That dude. He sold all of his property and left his family unannounced and took off to participate in the Klondike Gold Rush. He didn't find any gold. No? He failed. Okay. Pretty bad. So then he returned, but Mary, like, had moved away. Right. Because he just up and left them. And uh, then he moved to Escanaba, Michigan. Uh Uh-huh. Full of 14-year-olds. And all the moonlight. You know, they're still 14 in daytime, too. So then he married a couple more times. Mm-hmm. Uh, his next wife was uh, Zilder Bisner, who divorced him four years later due to abuse. And within that time, he acquired a schooner named The Wanderer. The, the Wandering Eye at, like, middle school. I'm not letting this dude go. <laughs> you don't get to marry a 14-year-old and have me not call you a creep for half an hour, roaring <laughs> Mr. CV. Yeah, I don't know how old his other wife was, or the next one. We don't really talk about the next one, but... What does your wife do? Oh, she's a kindergartner. Kindergarten teacher? No, no, kindergartner. You're gross. He's gross. (laughs) The Wanderer did have a legit, like, shipping operation. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was hard for laws to be enforced on the water at the time. So it took to a lot of other operations. One thing he was known for was, like, sailing into ports at night and, like, stealing all the cargo. And transporting women in the prostitution trade. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a lot that, you know, weren't willing to be there. So that's what his second wife did for a living. Human trafficking victim. Maybe. Maybe. He would also alter sea lights. Uh, something called moon cussing, where you place fake ones and then turn them off. So that way, ships that were, like, using them would then get confused and end up crashing into rocks. And then once they crashed... He and his crew would come and get all the cargo. It it makes all your ideas about pirates just, like, swinging over with cutlasses in their teeth look like morons. Like, like, why don't we just make them crash? Because they're dumb. Just light, you know, put this light here, and then we'll turn it off, and then they won't know where they're going, because it'll be dark. And (laughs) now we get them, because they've come towards us. He would also sell uh, marsh hay to Chicago. Um, Chicago at the time had a pretty big horse racing scene Mm -hmm. um and it was thought that marche was like really good for their stamina and it was super easy to get so very cheap labor right but then he could sell it for super high price now it's rumored that our good buddy dan may or may not have started that rumor himself (laughs) (laughs) don't know how much uh truth there is to that but some people say that it could have been him it's good business if you can invent it He also was known for selling his cargo to the first or best buyer. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he didn't play favorites or keep friendships very well because he was like, well, no, that person's going to give me more money. Yeah, it all spends the same. That led to a lot of enemies. Mm-hmm. Well, like, kind of on multiple sides. Like, not only, like, the black market, but, like, police and stuff. I imagine he ran afoul of the police for a lot of reasons. Well, yeah. Um, so he also made money from venison poaching. That led to a conflict with, like, a fishery that also dealt with, like, venison and stuff because they had, like, quite a hold on the market. And so then he came in and started selling all this stuff, and they weren't very happy about it. So some stories say they were coming to attack him, (gasps) and he shot a cannon at them. (laughs) Some stories say that he attacked them, before they ever got a chance to do anything, because he knew they were going to do it, and he's like, no, don't mess with me. Mm-hmm. Either way, 
The cannon killed everyone on the boat. And that's why we have the DNR <laughs> sort of moderate this sort of thing. Don't shoot cannons at people over deer. There's enough. It's rude what it is. It's rude. This is all stuff we did, but none of this, like, is really what gave him his, like, pirate credentials. Uh-huh. Like, that was just, like... None of this is literal theft on the high seas. Yeah. In June of 1908, he hijacked a schooner, the Nellie Johnson. Oh, well, there you go. This story, there's so much conflicting stuff about this. Some stories say that he was the friend of the captain and met in a bar with the crew. And they just had a great time drinking away until the Nellie Johnson's crew, like, passed out. And then he and his crew stole the ship. Other stories say uh, he came aboard as, like, a crew member in, like, Grand Haven, Michigan. And he had a lot of alcohol with him. So he just started sharing it with the crew and... Intoxicated what? everyone. He's, he's friendly, Dan Seavey. Well, then he, like, tied everyone up and chained them and threw them overboard. And then stole the ship. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hope that second one's more true, because that sounds way more exciting. Wouldn't an easy way to check be, uh, are they all dead? Or <laughs> were the crew heard from again? No one talks about it. Because it gets even more, like, conflicting. Mm-hmm. Which you think that there would be like better records of this stuff, but everything is conflicting. He set out with the ship to Chicago to sell the lumber on board on the black market. And then he was pursued by the Tuscarora, and it said that a cannon shot across the bow happened from them, and good buddy Dan just surrendered. Well, yeah, he's just got black market boards. <laughs> What's he going to do with that? Who's buying lumber on the black market, though? I got some hot pine. Well, not too hot, but, like, figuratively hot. Black market? They were selling deer on the black market. I mean, come (laughs) on. They can sell wood. But These are things that are plentiful. You don't have to buy them from illegal sources. Chicago, like, doesn't have, you know, forests all, like, in it anymore. You got to sell that to people. It's also con- conflicting information about whether or not he sold the lumber. Some people say he did. Some people say he didn't. That seems a lot less important than whether he murdered all those men or not. So then there was conflicting stuff about like what he did with the Nellie Johnson afterwards. All we know is that he got rid of it somehow and okay. got back his boat. He was arrested on the charge of piracy, which some also say is not true, but he was arrested on the charge of piracy. We're going with this because this is what makes him a pirate. That would have literal records. <laughs> so he's arrested on the charge of piracy. Probably. Probably. But he was ch- not charged with it. We do know that. Uh-huh. He was not charged with that. He was charged with unauthorized removal of a vessel on which he had once been a seaman. <laughs> which is a lot of words. He, he got charged for nautical joyriding. Yes. <laughs> So he was released on bond, and charges were dropped when the owner of the Nellie Jan- Johnson failed to appear. <laughs> because he was either still drunk or dead. He had a lot of friends, or had friends of people that were involved in the trial. The judge, the lawyer, various things like that that helped get charges dropped. Uh, one person speculated that perhaps someone was a buyer of maybe his marsh hay. <laughs> or other things. Um, maybe they had dealings in some of the things that he sold. Either way, he was let go. Charges dropped. Free man. Mm-hmm. Now, he always claimed he was innocent, saying that 
he had either won the ship in a poker game or that it was given to him. Mm-hmm. And that's why he had it. He didn't steal it. I'm finders keepers. He, he spent some more time doing the stuff he was doing. And then he took a position uh, in the United States Marshal Services and worked to stop, like, poaching and smuggling and piracy on Lake Michigan. Well, it takes one to know why. Right? He would know, like, all the things. It's, it's like, catch me if you can, right? Exactly. Yeah. The Wanderer was destroyed in a fire in 1918. By a vengeful god. <laughs> and he pur- purchased a 40-foot motor launch. Now, it's unclear if he continued uh, his outlaw behaviors, um, but it's thought he might have because that was a favorite type of boat among Great Lakes smugglers during Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, in, 19- in the 1920s, he did retire, and in 1949, he died, still stating that he did not steal that boat. It was given to him, or he won it. And engaged to a local cheerleader. Now, Kieran, uh, in his article, told a really cool um, story, which I also read. But yet again, I found like conflicting information about where it falls in Roaring Dan's life. He placed it in the time when he was a deputy marshal for the Bureau of Indian Affairs at the earlier part of his life. Right. I found stuff that was stating that it was when he was a U.S. marshal after his Nellie Johnson Adventure. Mm-hmm. Either way, it's an interesting story. So he was going after a fugitive in a certain area of Michigan. Uh, and when he came across him at a bar, the guy's like, hey, I'll go quietly if you can beat me in a fight. <laughs> so it's said that they fought for hours, mm-hmm. only stopping to drink some more whiskey. This this is not a law enforcement story. This is something out of the Eddas. This is... <laughs> This is a story about Loki and the Jotun. <laughs> so, so Roar and Dan eventually knocked him out. Mm-hmm. Then dropped a piano on him. <laughs> okay, maybe it's more Looney Tunes than, <laughs> than Norse mythology. Of course, this guy died from his injuries later that evening, and Dan sent a telegram stating the guy died while resisting arrest. Technically true. <laughs> so, uh, that's Roaring Dan. That's the Roaring pirate Dan, right. of the Great Lakes. I feel like it's time to roar on out of here and take a quick break. Okay. I've had about all I can take lake pirates oh i would like to hear something about a righteous god-fearing man who's also maybe a pirate maybe i can compromise i mean it's it's a little confusing whether he was a pirate or not (laughs) conflicting information seems to be the thing of this episode so what do you got do you know of uh james jesse strang i have a feeling i'm about to he was born in 1813 in New York State and became a member of the Baptist Church at age 12. Uh, began studying law, married, moved his family to southwest New York, worked as a lawyer, minister, and postmaster. Okay. Oh, what a completely bland white bread life for an 1800s man. Yeah. This is very like, this is it. This is what you do. 
This is the leave it to beaver of the 1800s. Yeah, the house, the job, the, what is it, like the 2.5 kids? I never understood that. Well, back then it was more like 7.5. Yeah, but I was like, how do you get the half? It's an average. It's an average? Yes. I I prefer to think that they like are talking about cutting the kid in half. I know you do. I know. (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) seem very upset about that. You're going to be a godmother. You can't be (laughs) thinking about cutting kids in half. Uh, In 1843, he lost his uh, position as postmaster. Oh, he was licking the stamps. Don't like the stamps. They don't taste good. He and his family moved to Wisconsin and then to Nauvoo, Illinois. <laughs> so he went into hiding on Nauvoo because of the Trade Federation and he ate a flying pear. Did, did you not knew, know that there was a place called Nauvoo, Illinois? No. There, There is. That's nice. It's very... Does it have a lot of sand that's rough and gets everywhere? So uh, our good buddy, Jesse James here, became friends with Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. You know who Smith is, right? I know who okay. Joseph Smith is. Okay. Joseph Smith is the founder and prophet of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. He wrote the Book of Mormon. Well, yeah. he transcribed the Book of Mormon. Yes, yes. So Smith actually baptized him. They had huh. become like very good friends in a short amount of time. Aww. He decided to join the Mormon church. He was baptized by Smith. Uh, very soon after, he became an elder of the church and was sent to establish a Mormon stake in Voree. Wisconsin? You know what Varee, Wisconsin needs? Mormons. Mormons? Well, that's where they're going. So shortly after that is when Joseph Smith was killed. Oh, no. Uh, And after Smith's death, several men claimed the right to lead the LDS church, most significant being Brigham Young. Right. You know who else wanted to Brigham Young? Our good buddy Dan. Yeah, Roaring Dan. Yeah, yeah. It's never gonna end. (laughs) Um... So Brigham Young had the majority of the followers, mm-hmm. but a guy named Sidney Rigdon, who had some, and then James Jesse mm-hmm. Strang uh, held his own and had some followers as well. Now, he produced a letter that he said was the appointment allegedly from Smith, saying that he should take over. He testified that an angel had ordained him as successor. I mean, angels were talking to Smith all the time in secret documents nobody else was allowed to see. This checks out. This is the M.O. So the Quorum of Twelve within the church quickly, like, published a notice of his excommunication. (laughs) Uh, And he's like, that's not fair. You have no right to judge me. I'm the lawful president of the church. So there's going to be some going of separate ways here. Right. Now, 12,000... LDS, it said, accepted that Strang's claims were true. But not all would follow him to where he was going to go. Because it was Wisconsin. <laughs> and and many would leave over time. There, there were some very interesting differences between his beliefs and those of others. Um, and events he said happened, like he claims he found some other gold plates. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like, well, I found some too. <laughs> they say this he he also uh was originally very against polygamy mm-hmm. and a lot of his followers joined him because of this like he's against it this is good this is what we want and so they followed him to beaver island in michigan uh beaver island is 
in Northern Lake Michigan. Yeah. Um, it's by Traverse City. It's by Traverse City. Yep. So kind of in line with Mackinac Island, very close to it. But Mackinac Island is on the Lake Huron side. Beaver right. Island on the Lake Michigan for people who don't know where it is. Originally in 1848, a steamer with 25 of his followers uh, landed on Beaver Island. And then they were followed by 100 more. Uh, within the time of them, like, coming from Illinois, Wisconsin, wherever, they were kind of going back and forth. Like, he was sent to, like, you know, establish this Mormon stake, but then he's back in Illinois trying to, like, mm-hmm. claim his rights to the LES. As the Strangites arrived. Yes, as they arrived within that time, he announced that his views on polygamy were different. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly became, like, the strongest supporter of it. I've been thinking. I've been thinking. And uh, lots of wives. Yeah. Lots of wives. Like, he would eventually go on to have five. So his second wife, though. Second wife, they got married before the move to Beaver Island, before he announced this. So she dressed as a man (laughs) until after they were, like, on the island and he announced his reversed opinion. I hope that was part of the announcement. Like, she was wearing some sort of quick change dress with a pull string like whoa woman something like a nine month time frame from when they got married to when people are like oh yeah i'm i'm his wife just so you know so they're on beaver island for a couple years and then in july of 1850 he proclaimed himself king of the kingdom of god on earth he was crowned in front of his followers with a red flannel robe crown scepter of wood. Like, <laughs> uh, the most lumberjacky coronation I've ever heard. Now, he never said to be king of the island or like. That would be silly. Or like the area, but king to his followers. Mm-hmm. But he began to place authority over other people on the island, saying that they needed to pay to the church or that, you know, they couldn't do these things that they didn't do. Or they'd be, like, taken into the woods and flogged. Oh, well, hmm, I don't know about that. So so that led to a lot of, you know, friction mm-hmm. within the Beaver Island community, um, which grew when he tried to put a stop to the whiskey trade in the area. Look, if you're <laughs> going to marry more than one woman, you're going to want to drink now and again. Am I right, fellas? Hey, oh, up top. Don't give me that look. <laughs> <laughs> So they they created a lot of enemies, but there was also a lot of, like, Mormon prejudices at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and his people were attacked and robbed several times by other people in the area. Um, In the summer of 1950, a drunken mob of fishermen vowed to, like, kill them all or drive them out. But they didn't get very far because Mm -hmm. good buddy Jesse here had a cannon (laughs) that no one knew about and he fired it at them. So they all ran away. They're like, nope, we ain't doing this. He's got a cannon. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Have cannon, we'll win. That's the story of Lake Michigan. Uh, Cannons really uh, help you out. Imagine the story of that mob. You know, like, there's somebody who's had a few too many. He hates Mormons for whatever reason. You know, like, I heard... I heard... And there's the, the, the reasonable guy at the other end of the bar. He's like, just calm down. We'll... You want to raise a mob, we'll talk about it in the morning after you slept it off. Well, did you hear, hear that they crowned this guy with a wooden scepter and a flannel cape? Like, 
You know, you're right. We should chase these weirdos out of our island. You you convinced me, Drunken Jim. <laughs> Drunken Jim. I like that he has a name. Drunken Jim sounds like a nice fella who's just down on his luck. <laughs> nice guy, down on his luck, raises mobs to cast people out of an island. He, he was drunk. He didn't know what he was doing, I guess. He was like, yeah, you know, I heard the story. Some, it was... Sober Bob, who's like, let's go mob these people. Oh, Sober Bob. <laughs> you, you thought you were the reasonable one, but maybe the true wisdom is in the heart of Drunken Jim. So, due to his coronation... Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone was invited. <laughs> um, tales were, were spread about it, and other stories were spread um, by an old follower who had had a falling out. Over the booze or over the wives? <laughs> Maybe all of it. Over the beatings, over the... String was brought to trial for treason, counterfeiting, trespassing, and theft. Tax evasion. (laughs) Double parking. So he had a good defense, though, and ended up with, like, favorable press. Um, And it helped him win a seat in the Michigan state legislature as a Democrat in 1853. (laughs) Now, while he was there, like, he introduced ten bills and five of them passed. I can imagine a lot of people wanting to take uh, pitchforks (laughs) and torches to today's state legislature. So, he was actually re-elected in 1855. Mm -hmm. And he did a lot to organize uh, northern Michigan into counties and townships, apparently. Somebody Uh, had to do it. He did fight, though, to end liquor trade to local Native American tribes, which made him a super enemy among people on Beaver Island and Mackinac Island because they profited from it. Right, yeah. And at at some point within here, he also decreed that females within his Mormon Beaver Island group must wear bloomers instead of skirts. Well, the man's got his priorities. (laughs) He knows what needs doing. Now... The 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 tales of piracy vary, and whether or not they're true, it's hard to say. But the stories that are attached to him are um, many ships that would disappear along the island, Ooh. cut chains, missing anchors. Um, an 1855 newspaper reported that marauding pirates the Mormons of Beaver Island were traveling from Grand Haven to Manistee, burning sawmills and robbing stores. And some claimed that uh, he was able to get a Mormon lighthouse keeper appointed and that they would sometimes turn the light off so ships would crash and then they could steal all the cargo. He learned that one from Roar and Dan. Well, Roar and Dan came after this, so maybe this is where Roar and Dan learned it. Oh, he's an, he's an innovator, uh, James Jesse. Some some of that's probably super exaggerated because there were so many uh, Mormon prejudices at the time. But you also gotta wonder how much of that is true. Did they really do that? I like to think that there are some Mormon pirates going around. (laughs) Burning down sawmills. (laughs) Because they want whiskey, but they can't have it. So he made a lot of enemies among his people. Yeah. Um, Thomas Bedford had been flogged because his wife refused to wear bloomers. And later then he was flogged again for adultery. Do do you think he was into the bloomers? Was was the woman he cheated with a a bloomer acceptor? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Though I saw a picture of like, well, it was a girl, but like a girl in like her bloomer outfit. And 
It was weird. It was like this tiny, like, short dress. Mm-hmm. And then, like, it looked like there were clouds attached to her legs. That's an 1850s hubba hubba. <laughs> so then Dr. H.D. McCulloch was uh, excommunicated as well. Um, so the two of them conspired with Alexander Wentworth and Dr. J. Atkins, who um, previously had tried to, like, blackmail some of the followers. Uh-huh. Um, so they're the bad boys of Beaver Island. Yeah. <laughs> so The Beaver Island Breakfast Club. So he he knew. He knew people were out to kill him. Like, he <laughs> he heard rumors. He knew information. He was like, yeah, people are going to kill me. Th- this is but, the director's cut of The Breakfast Club, where they stab the principal. But he didn't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, yeah, they're never going to actually do it. I'm king of God's <laughs> haven on Earth. What are they going to do? On June 16th, 1856, Wentworth and Bedford shot him in the back on a dock. And this uh-huh. happened in full view of the USS Michigan, which was a naval vessel, and no one did a thing. They just watched. <laughs> they're not the police. They're the Navy. It's not their business. So he was hit in the head, the cheek, and the spine, which paralyzed him. Wentworth and Bedford ran aboard the USS Michigan and claimed sanctuary. Some accused the captain, Captain McBlair, of the Michigan for assisting them, knowing it was happening conspiring with them which you know maybe was true because he refused to live to deliver them to the sheriff and instead took them to mac uh mackinac island where they were given a mock trial find a dollar 25 and released (laughs) (laughs) well at least they did have to serve a sentence for murder buck 25 25. that's the cost of a human life So Strang was taken to Voree and lived for three weeks before he died in July. Uh, he refused to appoint a successor before he died, telling them to await divine instruction. All right. First person to find the third set of golden plates, you're in charge. Meanwhile, while he's on his deathbed, a drunken mob descended on Beaver Island and evicted all of his followers. They were forced onto boats and then left on the shores of Lake Michigan. This is basically the hillbilly version of the Munster Uprising. <laughs> and and then, you know, after they were, like, left on the shores, they, they parted and went to different places. Some went back and joined the... Your mainline Mormons. Mainline Mormons. Uh, some continued to follow his ideologies and some just went other ways. Mm-hmm. But he was dead. So the question is, were they pirates? Did they actually do piracy things? Well, from all these accusations, I don't remember any specifically being sailing a boat to rob from another boat that was sailing. Just turning off lights so the boats crashed and then taking everything on there. Right. That's that's just theft. Theft. That's land theft. So they're 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 thefting? Yes. Okay. Thefters? <laughs> We tend to call them thieves. <laughs> I want them to have their own name. That's the tale of the Mormon possible pirate of the, Lake Michigan. The pirate king of Beaver Island. The pirate king of Beaver Island. James Jesse Stang. Strang. Strang. I got another story for you here. Sure, sure. Does not have to do with pirates. <gasps> oh, we ran out of the only two pirates. Um, so have you ever heard of Singapore, Michigan? 
I've heard of both Singapore and Michigan, but the middle bit of the Venn diagram is new to me. Okay. So Singapore, Michigan was a town that was founded in 1836 um, on the eastern side of Lake Michigan near what is now Saugatuck. Uh-huh. It's said that it was named after Singapore the country in hopes Makes to, sense. like, lure boat traffic there. <laughs> What? I guess because they're like, it's what? an island, there's boats there, so come how, come to us. How bad do you expect people's maps to be? I'm I'm hoping, like, be like, oh, I heard about Singapore once, maybe that's what it was. I, people were dumb in the 1800s. They're counting on them being even <laughs> dumber than they were. Far dumber. So at its height, Singapore, Michigan... Had three mills, two hotels, a general store, a couple banks, Mm -hmm. and it was very much a lumber town because it it was surrounded by dense forests. Right. Until they ran out of them and deforested the island after building a bunch of moai heads. No. (laughs) Um, So the town of Singapore had a pretty, pretty rough time of it in 1838. Uh, there are two banks that were established uh, in the county. Mm-hmm. There is the Bank of Elgin and the Bank of Singapore. Uh, over $50,000 in Singapore banknotes had been in circulation. Now, state banks were required to maintain enough hard currency uh, on hand to cover one-third of banknotes in circulation. After the Civil War, neither bank was at that level. Uh-huh. And, like, the banks, like, they had this... They would get warning from nearby towns that, like, the bank inspectors were coming. And so they would transfer, like, all the bank from, or all the money from, like, the Singapore bank to the Elgin bank. Mm -hmm. And then they'd come inspect it. They'd be like, look, it's all here. Now let's go out for a drink. And while they're getting the inspector nice and drunk, they put everything back in the other bank. So you can go inspect that. Yeah, that was eventually found out, though. But that was the thing they were known for. And yeah, they, they got uh, an inspector from Beaver Island who was <laughs> not able to drink for religious reasons. Probably. So the timing was way off. Probably. Um, they were also affected by the 40-day blizzard of 1842. I imagine a lot of folks were. Uh, it's claimed that the town would have been wiped out if it weren't for a shipwreck that was offshore. <laughs> and they were able to get all the food from the ship to keep the town going until the <laughs> blizzard was over. Now, the main part of their story comes from after the Great Chicago Fire, there's also a fire in Holland and um, Bastigo, all in 1871. So the need for lumber was super great. Right, right. You gotta gotta rebuild three cities. Yeah. And the mills within Singapore were like, yes, business, take our wood. That's Um, where the, uh, the black market for lumber comes from. They were almost completely dis- deforested by the lumber that they were producing and sending off. Mm-hmm. Now, due to all this deforestation um, and taking away protective tree covers and removing trees that act as stabilizers, the wind and sand coming off Lake Michigan quickly started to take over the town. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, some buildings were moved upriver where most were just left. And they were covered by sand. And the town was buried by sand within, like, four years. <laughs> and abandoned. No, some parts were said to still be visible till like, 1883. But it was unlivable. Like, you, you couldn't be there. So, the town is now 
a ghost town that's completely buried by sand. All that actually exists there now is a giant sand dune where you can, like, rent dune buggies and go <laughs> drive over it. That's what's there now. There's not a t- It's gone. That's incredible. Yeah. So shortly after this, like, after the town was vacated, um, Henry Chandler Cowles uh, discovered the importance of dune vegetation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, how that, you know, affects the stability of the dunes. And one of the big things was cottonwood trees were super responsible for building giant dunes as when they were covered by sand, they'd grow taller, sending more roots out from the buried trunk, and then they continue to grow and be covered and grow and be covered. And that allowed for, you know, large, staple dunes. Something Singapore definitely did not have. Because it is amazing. It is amazing to look at. A me- uh, there's some great pictures out there of, like, this is where the town should be. But here's this giant dune. And oh, look, you can see the sand buggy driving over it. <laughs> It's a town founded to take uh, advantage of idiocy and then doomed by their own idiocy. It's yeah. it's poetic, the tale of Singapore. Yeah. So that's, I think, like one of the coolest like ghost towns in a way. Because most of them are just, oh, they, you know, you know, abandoned from resources giving out or, you know, there was a gold rush here, but we didn't find any gold. Well, this was, they were covered in sand. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't stay if they wanted to. Well, so that that's a few of uh, a few of the Great Lakes oddities. There's certainly plenty more, but I'm a couple sure. of my favorites. Oh, thank you, dear. Did Did you learn anything? I learned that the 1800s were a time of incredible possibility. <laughs> it's a whole century of nobody ever asking why. <laughs> Should we? Wait, what? <laughs> These were questions that did not come up for an entire hundred year period. No, they didn't. Thank goodness for the invention of television sapping all of our free time <laughs> so we don't do any of this idiocy. <laughs> so we don't have... The, the time to think of these things? Yeah, because, you know... Gotta, gotta be home for Gotta be Mr. home Robot. for Mr. Robot. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot, like, unscrew light bulbs on the lake <laughs> and then call myself the king of flannel. <laughs> I just wish there was a picture of that. I just want to know what it looks like. So, uh, while, while we collect ourselves... <laughs> Uh, we'll be right back with some of your letters. And welcome back. We got so many letters. Yeah, we did. The prompt you gave the folks was to share some of their favorite local oddities. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you sure ding did. <laughs> and if you'd like to send us a letter, you can send it to... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Jamie sent us some uh, of his favorite public speeches. Stretching the definition to uh, more of a bit, Rob Paravonian's rant on Pachelbel's canon. As a musician and aspiring songwriter, it really does hit home how uh, those 
simple, natural, uh, maybe even lazy chord progressions are the first thing that come to mind and become uh, quite the cliche. Thanks, Jamie. Nick and Taylor sent us an email that ice cream trucks are really the first food truck, and they were curious if we would be interested in doing an episode about the unsung heroes of hot childhood summers. My dad sold ice cream out of the good humor truck during the Detroit riots. I, I think I've bought ice cream out of an ice cream truck once in my life because I lived in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Thanks, Nick and Taylor. Tammy writes back uh, to correct some of my German pronunciation. Hey, no promises. Uh, <laughs> but also shares uh, some stories about Santa Cruz, California, including their local Bigfoot Museum and one of the most haunted places in the U.S., the Brookdale Lodge. That's currently closed for renovations, but has a lot of morbid stories attached to it. Thanks, Tammy. Sounds like I love it. Rachel sent us uh, an email and did agree that history really is better with your honey. We say it every other week. I'm, the, I'm glad people are finally agreeing. If you're not convinced, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Rachel's favorite oddity thing is uh, she was born and raised in Santa Rosa, California. Uh, Santa Rosa is known for being the home of Charles Schultz, creator of the Peanuts, I know that guy. Yeah, and this place sounds amazing. Apparently, there is an ice skating rink that's named after him. That he owned. That he owned, um, where he would, like, play hockey uh, and have breakfast every morning before going back to his studio. Many, many other things, including um, statues throughout the town that are painted and customized by a local artist. But yeah, so all, all the ones there, though, are, are Snoopy Peanuts characters that are painted that way, which would probably be pretty cool. So thank you, Rachel. That thank sounds awesome. Thank you so much. James writes to us about what happens to be my second favorite cryptid, the Hodag. Uh, the Hodag first made the news in 1893 when reports came in about a creature with the head of a frog, the grinning face of a giant elephant, the thick short legs offset by huge claws, the back of a dinosaur, and a long tail with spears at the end. And sightings continued to prop up and eventually uh, like a, a taxidermied Hodag was produced and photographed. And then eventually person behind it admitted it was all a big hoax. However, the Hodag legacy and even Hodag sightings continue regardless. But thanks for giving us some Hodag facts, James. Uh, Kieran also wrote in about this episode, uh, appropriately enough. Thanks again, uh -huh. Kieran. And shares a series of articles he wrote uh, on the odd side of Donegal. It's the, the name of the series. The favorite of his is probably the story of the town of Urus. Now, Urus was hit with a bunch of uh, fines and fees for their moonshine production uh, that they didn't feel like paying. So they uh, put a bunch of rocks down in, in the one pass on the one road leading to town and declared themselves independent. <laughs> uh, they all used their fishing boats to still go out and do any sort of what would now be international business that they that needed doing, but the tax man couldn't get in. A few years later, the army was sent in to get things sorted out and reintegrate the town. But for quite some time, Urus was the most successful attempt 
uh, to throw off British rule. So uh, thank you, Karen. Uh, Jennifer sent us an email with an episode suggestion. So thank you, Jennifer, for the suggestion. Thanks, Jennifer. I'm glad you are and your husband are listening. Joshua sent us an email with an interesting fact about the city of Darien, Illinois, where he grew up. It is only named so because Sam Kelly, the acting mayor of the town, when it was in the process of being incorporated, had been to Darien, Connecticut, and really liked it there. So it was like, hey, let's name that this as well. (laughs) It'll be nice, too. I kind of love it. Thanks, Joshua. Ian writes us a letter about Fremont, Washington. Uh, It was founded as an independent city and came to be known as the center of the universe. It was later annexed by Seattle and remains a distinct and, uh, well, distinct neighborhood of (laughs) Seattle. Uh, There's a whole bunch of strange and interesting public displays to be seen, like uh, the Fremont Troll, a giant concrete sculpture with hubcaps for eyes, or the bronze statue of Vladimir Lenin, something you don't usually see in the United States. (laughs) But yeah, thanks for all these wonderful Fremont notes, Ian. It sounds like a heck of a place to be. (laughs) John sent us an email, first off with a question. Mm-hmm. Um, because we both seem pretty politically aware. Um, I'm glad I come off that way. I don't really know if I am. Oh, I make it sound that way in the edit. Oh, good. Wants to know if we have a favorite political scandal or embarrassment that's going to turn up in a future episode. No spoilers. No spoilers. Okay, there. that's answered your question. Also answered uh, favorite musical being Blood Brothers. By Willie Russell, uh, and political speech being Tony Ben's Five Questions About Power. Now, local oddity, however, for John, as his town in the UK has a copy of the Statue of Liberty that's about eight feet tall. I think they have bigger <laughs> ones in gift shops in Vegas. <laughs> the story that seems to stick about why it exists is that it used to be on top of a local building and was deemed unsafe, so it was moved to ground level. Why was that on top of a building? <laughs> so you know how much freedom there is in there. Okay. It's a lot. Well, thanks, John. Thank you, John. Glenn shares some uh, Pennsylvanian oddities, including the nearby-ish town of Centralia that, that is sitting on top of a burning coal mine of eternal fire. <laughs> There's a prison in Philadelphia where H.H. Holmes was incarcerated and eventually hung, which at one point housed Edgar Allan Poe for a drunken disorderly. And also the Poe toaster, one who gives an annual toast at Poe's grave, a bottle of cognac every year on his birthday for at least 60 years, leading some to believe this is an inherited position. Surely the original (laughs) mysterious toaster has passed the work on at least once leave like a bottle just yeah at your son's bedside like son it's now time for you to take this over be like what 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 if i'm eight i can't (laughs) walk around with that look your sister's old enough to be married to a lake pirate you can handle this (laughs) never letting go so thanks glenn thanks a lot glenn michael sent us an email bit of local history is uh, from Toledo and home of the Toledo War. Uh, when Michigan was seeking statehood, they claimed a section of Ohio called the Toledo Strip. 
which led to a lot of things happening. But let the record show, hey, Ohio, we kicked your ass. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. And uh, cuddle your dog for, for us. Yes, cuddle, buddy. Ian writes back about his uh, favorite oddity in the Santa Cruz, California area, a place called the Mystery Spot, where you go in and because of the uh, natural, unusual uh, uh, factors of the area, all sorts of strange phenomena occur. Now, the thing is, th- this is not a unique place. This is a sort of tourist trap that is all over the country. Mm-hmm. It's just built tipped over into a hill. <laughs> You're just on sort of like a 15 to 20 degree angle, and that's where all these optical illusions come from. <laughs> and yeah. and strange gravitational effects. Gravity's normal, just the everything's tilted. Darnell sent us an email. Darnell's from New York City. Um, it doesn't actually know a lot of oddities around the city, but has always uh, been partial to the alligators in the sewer myth. Uh, though personally prefers the idea of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in there instead. Well, yeah, they got rid of the alligators. <laughs> they were always eating the, the pizza delivery guy, so they had to clean house. Um, does share the fact that Washington Square Park was built over a graveyard. Um, and if you're really lucky, you can still find some old graves because they didn't move them. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they had a deadline. So thank you, Darnell. Thanks, Darnell. Uh, Steven wrote us. Uh, Steven would really like to know if you're going to ever talk about the Illuminati. There's no such thing as the Illuminati. Beyonce is not my secret master, and I'm not being funded by the Bilderberg Group. So there. Gareth wrote in to talk about uh, Gavleblocken, an enormous <laughs> straw goat. Straw goat! Actually, do That is erected annually in uh, Galv, Sweden, around Christmas time, and has become a very popular target for arson-inclined vandals. Don't burn the goats! Now, Gareth, I did know about this. Sometimes I guest on other people's shows, and last December I was on an episode of Blurry Photos, uh, and we compared notes about recent unusual happenings, and Dave... Talked about gavel blocking, and that conversation is one of the funniest things I've ever been a part of. Thank you for reminding me. (laughs) And thanks for writing, Gareth. Porin writes in again, the most prolific History Honeys emails writer. His hometown uh, has a day every year where they celebrate a bridge exploding. Do you know why, dear? Uh-huh, because I read his email, and then I, like, yelled at you across the apartment about it. <laughs> You're really bad at playing along. <laughs> it's because the bridge is the historical bridge over the actual River Kwai. Yes! <laughs> subject of one of my favorite films ever. <laughs> I also very much enjoy it. Most folks listening to this, I figure, certainly myself, are our most... Familiar with that bridge through the film, you know, Alec Guinness put in the hot box and the American commando side plot that frankly drags. But that's not really the way it was and certainly not no. from the perspective of the people living in occupied Japanese territory yeah. during the war. Bridge was built. The Japanese occupying forces were using it uh, as a supply line, naturally. The Allied forces did not like that one bit. So they carpet bombed the bridge trying to knock it out. 
What that means is they bombed all the villages around the bridge as well, just raining death. So when the bridge was finally destroyed, that is the event they're celebrating. Finally, the Americans are no longer dropping bombs on our heads to take out this bridge. Let's make this an annual festival. So thank you so much, Purin, for that, uh, I think, needed perspective. Yes. Thank you. Erina, favorite oddity is the Loreg Caverns, um, which visited as a child uh, in his largest caverns in the eastern U.S. That sounds pretty darn cool. It does sound pretty cool. Thanks, Erina. Brian writes in uh, to talk about Austin, Texas's moon towers, 165-foot tall lampposts installed in 1894. Seriously, the 1800s or anything goes. They're rumored to have been put up in response to an Austin serial killer, the Servant Girl Annihilator. Very descriptive name. Who was active in 1883. Makes you wonder why they waited 11 years. (laughs) Might not be the most accurate rumor. But at the time, people were worried that uh, having these huge lampposts would prevent animals from sleeping and make plants grow out of control. (gasps) The only thing keeping the jungle from overtaking civilization is nighttime. (laughs) You let them photosynthesize for 24 hours and you're asking for trouble. Thanks, Brian. And thank you, darling, for making 10 wonderful episodes with me. We, we hit a milestone. Woo! We're double digits. That's very exciting. It is. And if you'd like to help us celebrate, uh, one of the best things you can do is give us a rating and review on iTunes or the uh, pod catching service of your choice. Helps us so, so much. Uh, we've got dozens of reviews, mostly from the U.S. Hey, UK, come on. <laughs> I see you listening, but I don't see you rating and reviewing. That's all I'm going to say. Um, you can also tell a friend. Uh, share our Facebook page with them. Share our Twitter. Send them a link to our Podbeam site. Whatever you think might get them interested. Um, telling your friends always helps. Tell your mom. <laughs> tell your child. It tell works. grandma. Ask Tammy. It works. <laughs> Yeah, so just pass it on to someone who you mm-hmm. think might like us. And if you'd like to be part of our next episode's letters portion, uh, drop a line to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Oh, you should check out me from two days ago on Friend of the Show Sunday School Dropouts. We, we've done like reciprocal plugs, but I was a special guest in their Ezekiel episode that uh, just came out, talking about ancient astronaut theory. Oh, boy. It was a whole lot of fun. Well, I'm Elena. And I'm Grant. And history is better with with your your honey. honey.